Good morning and welcome to Rising. Robbie, I have no idea what we're going to do today. What, how's this show going to be? Oh, we're going to have a show? Yeah. Okay. All right. Here we go. Well, we can read off of this thing. So we're going to read. Good. We'll see what it yeah. says. Brianna Joy Gray will unpack AOC's warning for Democrats over midterms. Just kidding. We have this on lock. We know exactly what we're doing. <laughs> Reporter Alex Thompson will also discuss his investigation of President Biden's science advisors and their financial ties to a Google billionaire. But before we get to all that, so during an interview with John Solomon on Just the News, former President Trump called on Russian President Vladimir Putin to release information regarding alleged dealings between Russian oligarchs and Hunter Biden. I would also call on him to stop the invasion of Ukraine, maybe yeah, if we're well, just calling on him to do you've things. You've got an open but line, yeah. Just this week, the Wall Street Journal reported that the federal tax investigation into Hunter Biden is gaining steam as prosecutors in Delaware seek information and grand jury testimony. Meanwhile, on Capitol Hill, Congressman Matt Gates brought up the now infamous laptop during a cross-examination with the FBI's assistant director, for FBI cyber, let's watch. Well, you've talked about passwords here. I mean, Hunter Biden's password on his laptop was Hunter02. He drops it off at a repair store. I'm holding the receipt from Max Computer Repair, where in December 2019, they turned over this laptop to the FBI. And what now you're telling me right here is that as the assistant director of FBI cyber, you don't know where this is after it was turned over to you three years ago. Yes, sir, that's an accurate statement. How are Americans supposed to trust that you can protect us from the next colonial pipeline if it seems that you can't locate a laptop that was given to you three years ago from the first family, potentially creating vulnerabilities for our country? Sir, it's, it's not in the purview of my investigative responsibilities. After Gates continued to question the director, the exchange ended like this. Gentlemen, is recognized. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. After a consultation with majority staff, I seek unanimous consent to enter into the record of this committee content from, files from, and copies from the Hunter Biden laptop. Without objection. Thank you. Yield back. Well, that's interesting because how, what does that mean? Does that mean that the public can now through the congressional record access everything? I think you just had contents of it, right? So it's just like putting on the record what has already been reported? I don't know. Mm -hmm. I have no. Because there's a lot in it that hasn't been reported. Right. We'd like to know. Could We'd like still to take a look through it. I guess we can go check the congressional record. I guess we'll check. Interesting, um, it's an interesting tech question of what. Yeah. What I, the public would have access to Matt at this Gates, point. I assume it's just kind of like grandstanding with no point, but maybe sometimes. But you know, sometimes he can be subversive in real ways. Um, so I don't know. It's we'll see. I like his opinions on, uh, on, on some things. Some things. If he shakes it up, you got to respect <laughs> that. I mean, you don't have to respect that. What do we make of this claim that a Russian oligarch's wife, the former mayor of what Russian city? Moscow. Moscow. Uh, she is alleged to have donated $3 million, given, don donated, given right. $3 million to a company, but it's not clear if that company is connected to Hunter Biden, it has a slightly different name than what we know is connected to Hunter Biden, but, and his attorneys have denied it, but his, it looks right, very his, his, sus, his, as the kids right. would say. His lawyers previously said that this company, which was Seneca Rosemont Thornton, was right. different than Seneca Rosemont Advisors, but there's evidence that it's all the same people. And so his lawyer has said, well, Hunter wasn't involved with that company. 
Right. What does Hunter's involvement with a company mean? I mean, is Hunter joining the Zooms? Is Hunter on the conference calls? Not really, Probably not. not. Not exactly. It's for the last name. They're like, they're, yeah. they're emailing Hunter. Can you, Hunter, right. can you get this to the right person? Right. Because people will read your email. People will listen to your text. So, you know, there are, there are investigations underway, like, right. like you said, into Hunter's finances. And so it, it takes a higher level of forensic accounting than we're necessarily capable of just here uh, in the chairs to figure out exactly what his connection was. But from a distance, it's like it's all the same people and, all, and a bunch of different company right. names. And that company did get this $3.5 million consulting agreement from uh, from the wife of the Moscow mayor. Trump himself, of course, sought to do business in Russia many and, times. And Moscow, and I think with the same mayor. Right. Uh, and, uh, and now he's asking Putin to clear it all up, and which, which also shows that there's still some open questions about it. So maybe the, maybe the grand jury can subpoena Putin, and we'll finally get to the bottom of this once Putin's finished with his warmongering. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, this is the urgent thing. It's an, it's an, it is a fascinating point that Trump's interactions with Putin so far have been to say it was a genius move. Help me out. Help me out, and then help me out again <laughs> with give me some more dirt on Hunter Biden. Because oh, okay. that's what he was lacking, a little dirt on Hunter Biden. There you go. All right, let's get into some updates from Ukraine. Yesterday, Russia announced they would scale back military operations near Kiev as the outlines of a possible deal to, to see a ceasefire became more tangible next steps at the latest round of negotiations. Ukraine has laid out a framework for declaring itself neutral and its security would be guaranteed by other nations, which was received positively by the Russians. However, the announcement to cut back military activity near Ukraine's capital was met with skepticism from the U.S. Rightly so. We're now hearing reports of new attacks on the outskirts of Kiev and northern city of Chernihiv, two areas that the Kremlin vowed to reduce combat operations around. This comes as the U.S. and allies ready for more sanctions in efforts to erode Russian supply chains, while the deputy U.S. Treasury Secretary said, quote, in addition to sanctioning companies in sectors that enable the Kremlin's malign activities, we also plan to disrupt their critical supply chains. So they, they haven't st actually stopped attacking Kyiv. Well, so what several analysts said was that if they withdraw, and there actually is some evidence that they are, that they're, that they are physically moving back, and if they did that, that they would be shelling the entire time while they did that. Like basically covering their own retreat, mm -hmm. uh, and like which is a pretty standard form of retreat, which the Russians and their defenders don't want to refer to it as a tr as a retreat. It's being played up as this. It was an extremely clever diversion. Right. They just created a sixty-five kilometer traffic jam of of their own material, so that everybody would be distracted from their in, in their uh, invasion over in Donbas, which never made sense to me because they have a big enough military and Ukraine is a weak enough military that if they just wanted to invade the Donbass, which they effectively control already, they could have done that without, you know, you know a smaller country needs, to, needs diversionary tactics against bigger countries. Bigger countries don't have to trick littler countries. Bigger countries just smash littler countries. Like, that's how that works. But so it, it does actually appear that there's that there's um, some regrouping and retreating going on. I think the bigger question is whether it's 
whether it was voluntary or whether it was kind of forced on them by uh, a, a defense that was unexpectedly robust. Right. And, and by difficulties in supplying, feeding, et cetera, their own troops, which we right. know have so, tremendous difficulty Right. The, the, the Ukrainians kept saying, like, they, they, they can only do this for two more weeks. They can only do this for another week. They can only do this for three days. Right. They're running out of food. They're running out of fuel. They're running out of ammunition. Uh, a lot of their people are dying. And roughly on, the, on that timeline, now Russia is saying, okay, we're going to strategically you know, reallocate our resources elsewhere. So it does back up what the Ukrainians were saying, that they can't maintain this, right. situa- this traffic jam forever. Right. Although I guess the people on the other, or people inclined to make contrary arguments say, well, no, this is just Russia doing exactly what they said they were going to do because their goal was never to take control of the country. So they're, you know, that's the other argument. I don't go. really buy that argument. But. There you go. We'll, we'll hash it out with Kim later. We'll hash it out with Kim. She'll be on later. Uh, and right, but next. Our radars. Stick around. Ryan, what's on your radar? Well, on Tuesday, the Russian government announced it would be dramatically reducing its troop presence around Kyiv in order to focus its war effort in the Donbass region. U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken was quick to dismiss the announcement. I have not seen any, anything that suggests that this is moving forward in a in an effective way because Russia, at least we've not seen signs of real seriousness, but. And CNN's Jim Shooter was quickly out with a story sourced to two top U.S. officials. He wrote, in the, in the U.S. view, this is not a short-term adjustment to regroup, but a longer-term move as Russia comes to grips with failure to advance in the North. The official said one consequence the U.S. is concerned about is keeping the European allies unified on economic pressure and military support as Washington expects some of them to press Ukraine to accept a peace deal to end the fighting. Wait. What? So most of the world is worried that this could accidentally trip into World War III, and Washington is worried that European countries might want a peace deal to end the war in Europe? That's Washington's fear? This is more evidence that there very much is a hawkish faction inside the national security establishment that doesn't want this war to end yet and wants to continue bleeding Russia. And if Ukraine has to be bled in the process, well, that's just unfortunate. Now, if this was representative of the war hawk position within the U.S. government, would CNN's Jim Shooto be the person they'd leak to? Well, let's see how sober-minded his reporting on the conflict has been so far. Parallels to 1939 are real, an expansionist, undeterrable leader applying ruthless military force. So far, the West has stood, but at minimal cost to its people. We still celebrate defeating the Nazis with enormous sacrifice. Will unity hold when costs exceed higher gas prices? Hmm, okay, it's a 1939 reference and talking about a country with a nuclear arsenal. But that's Twitter. Everybody loses their cool every now and then. Let's see his on-camera stuff. In other words... Uh, making plans for having a country to run under Russian Russian rule, replacing Ukraine's own officials. And, and then the added detail of not just replacing them, but killing some of them, perhaps, and rounding them up and putting them in camps. It's as if we were times transported back to 1939 when we discussed these kinds of tactics and plans. It's remarkable. Is this, though, perhaps a 1939 moment in that are we confident that Putin stops at Ukraine? We are being tested as well. This is a 1939 moment for Europe 
and the world. Bastards and traitors, natural self-cleaning. I, I, it, it evokes 1939. What, what did you hear there from the Russian president? Hatred, Jim. So it's clear that a huge chunk of the administration and of the media only wants to see this war go in the direction of more escalation, more confrontation, more quote-unquote strength. Would a, a strike in Poland on supplies or, or anything really uh, automatically be met with a military, a forceful response, or simply a conversation amongst allies about how to respond? There are reports that a Russian drone made its way into uh, Polish airspace before going back to Ukraine and being shot down. Does a drone into Poland count? Hi, Greg Tittynibble with the Washington Post. Ukraine has been asking for you to beat the out of these guys uh when's that happening okay would be kind of a dope story um sir you've made it very clear in this conflict that you do not want to see world war three but is it possible that in expressing that so early that you were too quick to rule out direct military intervention in this war could putin have been emboldened knowing that you are not going to get involved directly in this conflict no one no Okay, actually, one of those was a TikTok parody account run by Moschino Dorito, but I'm not sure which one. Might have been the one in the middle, but could have been any of them. The point is, there is another direction this war could go, and it's toward de-escalation. And if the U.S. wants to be on the right side of history here and actually cares about Ukrainian lives and Ukrainian sovereignty, they'll support their efforts to end the war. I, I love that uh, that guy on TikTok <laughs> pretending to be a journalist, maybe a CNN journalist. Being like, more, why not more war? <laughs> yeah, come on. Were you too quick to rule out World War III? <laughs> yeah, the number of times uh, he references uh, 1939. Jesus. Right, calm down. Stop doing that. Calm Stop. down. <laughs> Stop. And to have it. Hush. And to have him reporting <laughs> that U.S. officials are telling him that they're nervous that. The Russian overtures of peace will be accepted by Ukraine and, and that the European, their European allies will put pressure on Ukraine to get to a peace deal, that that's what the U.S. Right. is nervous about, shows that there are some serious maniacs and, that are involved in this. But to be clear, I have no idea whether government officials are actually saying that. I don't trust the media to report that accurately. If, if there's one element of our political sector more hawkish than the State Department, it's actually just the mainstream media. They yeah. would tell you that, 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 right. that our State Department doesn't want peace because it's bad and we should actually you know, overthrow Putin and have World War III. They would tell you that regardless of what they were hearing. Maybe right. not, but you get the sense that they would. Right, and, and within every country... They would spit yeah. it in a way that sounds like that. Yes, for sure. And, and within every country, you have factions. In, you know, right. the, the, the palace intrigue, the, the royal, royal, royal courts, the, what, the Kremlinology. Right. In the U.S., you've got you know, some factions that are pushing for you know, a quick end to this, and you've got some factions that would love to see this you know, evolve into some greater conflict or really some giant clash. And the question is always, like, who... You know, who are in those, who's in those factions? In the and, Trump and administration, are... the question was who had talked to Trump last? Yes. Is it, was it Bolton or was it somebody else? <laughs> right. 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 And, and so we're trying to sort these out. And so all, all we can really tell from that, that one shooter article is at least, at least one person you know, yeah. somewhere in the government right. feels this way. Right. 
but then the, because the media is so and might have said and might like, have said a bunch of other things that were right. supportive of a peace between Russia and Ukraine and then said, you know, my one worry is this. And then right. that's it. That's the quote. Right. You know, the, the contextualizing the ability to ignore things you hear that are contrary. You can always it's in the media. It's so easy to construct whatever narrative you want. Mm -hmm. You can right because you can choose who you're talking to to support that narrative. You can ignore. You can selectively quote. You can do all sorts of things to, to build whatever story you want to build. In fact, the, the Blinken sot that we played at the top there is a good example of it. It's, a, it's about a two-minute answer that he gave. And the piece that I played is the piece that made the most amount of news globally that you know, we haven't seen any evidence. That, but what he says before and after that is, if they're doing this, great. And we're willing to support Ukraine in whatever way we can you know, to get to a peace deal. Like saying the, the right things, like good things, if, if you want this war to end. And then he throws on. But we don't see any evidence that Russia is remotely serious about this. But he's a diplomat. He knows that everybody ignores everything before the but. Yeah. So he says, you say all the right things, and then you say but. And then, and then that's when the reporter's like, Ooh, the but. Okay, let, let's, let, here, we've got our headline coming. And he gave them the headline. Yeah. But so let, let's go to the, the first part of that, supporting Ukraine to get toward a peaceful resolution of this. Yeah, let's do that. Let's do it right now. <laughs> Yeah, sounds good to me. All right, looking forward to what's on your radar up next. Robbie, what's on your radar? So earlier this week, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed legislation ostensibly aimed at preventing the discussion of sex and sexual orientation in the classroom. The legislation's supporters say that it is an anti-grooming bill that attempts to stop predatory teachers from introducing young kids to sexual concepts or conversations their parents don't approve of. The legislation's critics, on the other hand, call it the Don't Say Gay Bill and claim that it would prevent LGBT teachers from disclosing to students that they have same-sex partners. Indeed, some of the bill's detractors say that even heterosexual teachers wouldn't be able to acknowledge their spouses. The Atlantic's Derek Thompson and New York Times' Dana Goldstein pointed out that the specific language is classroom instruction of sexual orientation and gender identity. Thompson and Goldstein think that if a male teacher said, quote, my wife made me a sandwich today, what is your favorite sandwich? And quote, to a student, that would technically violate the law. And that, of course, sounds crazy. But even if it is, you can bet that plenty of Florida schools will want a complete and total shutdown of anything comes even close to that so that they don't get sued. So whatever your feelings about the bill are, trial, lawyer, trial lawyers certainly going to have a field day with it. So personally, while I agree that parents should have the right to prevent progressive educators from talking to very young kids about unsettled and debatable theories about gender, this bill really does go pretty far toward trying to dictate classroom policy at a really unworkable level. And so I'm against this version of it. And so is Disney, which is one of Florida's most important private employers. Outside the iconic Walt Disney Studios in Burbank, California. Say gay! Say gay! Today, dozens of Disney employees walked off the job. Um, you know, out here just in support of all of our here uh, employees and their families. An act of protest over Florida's so-called don't say gay bill. So first, the company didn't say anything, but then Disney employees staged a protest that encouraged the company to speak out. So finally, Disney CEO Bob Chapek came out against the Don't Say Gay bill and apologized for letting down his employees. Quote, starting immediately, we are increasing our support for advocacy groups to combat similar legislation in other states. We are hard at work creating a new framework 
for our political giving that will ensure our advocacy better reflects our values. And today, we are pausing all political donations in the state of Florida pending this review. That threat didn't even cause DeSantis to bat an eyelash. In fact, he said it was a badge of honor to have a woke corporation like Disney fighting him on this. So there's a lesson here for giant companies with progressive values. Republicans like DeSantis actually want you to fight them because it gives them more credibility with their base. But given that Disney has now joined the fight against anti-LGBT legislation and wants to stand up to governments like Florida that enact ostensibly anti-LGBT policies, I have a question for the CEO of Disney. Have you ever heard of Dominica? Dominica, you may not know, is a small island nation in the Caribbean. Dominica's government is very anti-LGBT. Not only is there no gay marriage there, but same-sex sexual activity is actually illegal. Gay marriage is also illegal in Antigua and on the Dutch island of St. Martin, where same-sex couples have to travel to the Netherlands to get married, and if the marriage won't be valid if they then return home. Yet Dominica, Antigua, and St. Martin are all locations visited by a Disney cruise line. So it strikes me as a little odd that Disney would want to denounce the government of Florida for merely approving legislation that makes it more difficult to acknowledge gay relationships in schools, but would continue to give business to an island nation that puts gay people in prison for being gay. And there's China. Gay people can't adopt children in China, and there are no anti-discrimination policies on the books to protect same-sex couples. China, of course, is guilty of far worse things, most notably against the Uyghur Muslims who have been forced into re-education camps in some cases. But Disney keeps making movies in China. In fact, Disney will go out of its way to avoid offending the Chinese communist government so that its movies can be shown there. That doesn't just seem hypocritical to me. It seems hypocritical to Ron DeSantis. Let's watch. I talked to the Speaker of the House yesterday afternoon, and he said Disney never called him while they were putting this through the House. They didn't seem to have a problem with it when it was going through. If this was such an affront, why weren't they speaking up at the outset? And yet they won't. And then for them to say they're going to actively work to repeal substantive protections for parents as a company that is supposedly marketing its services to parents with young children, uh, I think they crossed the line. And, you know, people ask me, you know, kind of about, you know, their posture on the bill. I said, you know what? If we would have put in the bill that you were not allowed to have curriculum that discussed the oppression of the Uyghurs in China, Disney would have endorsed that in a second. And that's the hypocrisy of this. And, um, you know, we're going to make sure we're fighting back when people are threatening our parents and threatening our kids. So I don't think this bill is very well thought out at all and has a ton of problems. But I have to hand it to DeSantis. That last thing he said, that was a fair point. This is the hypocrisy of, of trying to take personal stands against or boycotts against. No, we won't do business. We can't engage because this is bad. We don't like this thing. But what about all these other things that you're not saying anything about? It, it also goes to the kind of strategic question for Democrats and progressives of relying on corporations as your allies in these mm -hmm. fights. What, first of all, what does that mean when your interests run up against them, which as progressives, your interests ought to run up against them all the time, and if they don't, you should be questioning what kind of agenda it is that you're pushing that is so non-threatening to a global company like Disney that they're happy to collaborate with you. But, but then you're at their whim. And if they, if, they, if they decide that they're not gonna say anything as this moves through committee in Florida, it just goes through. So if that's your entire organizing effort, just kind of hoping that Disney is gonna come to your rescue, then you're gonna wind up at the, on the wrong end of 
a lot of these controversies. Now, I think it's different for Disney employees. If you're a Disney employee, then absolutely, like that's your, that, you know, you organize in your workspace. That, and I think actually that is what drives an underappreciated amount of this corporate activism is you know, workers at these companies. Oh, 100%. Pushing, pushing their bosses who push their bosses. And it's just much easier for the bosses to, to say, mollify the employees. Yeah, let's do this. Because it's not... Now, if they push for a higher minimum wage, then they're going to then they're going to have a war over If that. it's as easy as putting sticking a rainbow flag or sticker on the window, that yes. is an easy way to mollify right. the it's, employees. Right. It's that meme with the two buttons. You can either you can either put a sticker on on the window or you can give a higher minimum wage. Sticker. Corporations, oh, sticker how many every sticker, time. How many stickers do you need? Yeah. We got all the stickers you need. Until it's a problem for us and then we don't have stickers anymore and you still don't get the minimum wage. Right. <laughs> because now you've been co-opted and bought off. Right. Yeah, and I, I again, I think this legislation is is bad. I don't know that everything said against it is totally correct, um, and I do have some questions about curriculum in, in, in certain schools, uh, certain ideas that progressives have. Not so much about uh, sexuality, but about gender uh, that I, that I wouldn't want to introduce ne- necessarily to a kindergartner. Uh, that, that, right. I, not, that I certainly yeah. wouldn't want to be clear. I certainly wouldn't want to introduce yeah. to a kindergartner. Uh, so that, that is, I think, a, a legitimate objection that parents have. And I do support the curriculum transparency laws that are, that are being talked about in mm-hmm. some other places. Yes, I think parents should have every right to know exactly what is going on in the classroom, exactly what their kids are being taught. And I would also support school choice type stuff that if they don't like, that's my preferred solution, that if they don't like what this school's doing, I would give them the money and let them go to some other school. The kind of trying to dictate exactly what teachers are going to say in the classroom at all times, using the language in this bill, does make it look to me like even acknowledging that you have yeah. like a like, like a, a husband or a wife yeah. like a in a in a traditional relationship could possibly get you in trouble with this language. It's not clear, but if it's not clear, the, yeah. some school district officials just going to be like, you know, don't igno- don't say any don't say anything to the kids. Right. No, and you, that's kind of dumb. And you make a good point about the trial lawyers, because if it was just vague, there are a lot of laws that are kind of vague, and you could argue that some things might be prosecuted under there that weren't really intended to be uh, caught up in the scope of it, but no prosecutor is actually going to do that, so it's not that much of a real-world problem. But when you combine the vagueness with the private right of action, right. meaning that any crazy parent can take this school to yeah. court then you're exactly right. What that does, it doesn't necessarily mean a parent's going to do that, though they might. This is Florida. It means that the school administrators are going to say, don't. And if you've been around administrators, executives, lawyers in this country, they are the most cautious people out there. Right. You know what? This is probably fine, but it's safer if you don't do that because we don't want to to get in the media. We don't want to get caught up in court because, boom, if you get caught up in court, there goes our science teacher. There goes our art teacher. There goes our after-school resource. Like it all gets funneled into just fighting off lawsuits from these parents. So, so just don't go anywhere near. And so they write their own internal rules that are then much stricter than even right. the, the vague law. And that's, I think, the purpose here. Right. Yeah, and, it's, and it, it was a choice to make it a private right of action. Yeah. It, and te- you know, Texas really in- really loved getting around the Supreme Court's uh, Roe v. Wade by making it a private right of action that you can sue somebody for getting an abortion in Texas. Yeah, that was pretty crazy. That one's working its way through the courts, right? Yeah, but right, but it's been months now. Yeah. So, you know, how many many women have been deprived of their constitutional rights 
you know, thousands probably at this yeah. point. And I do think I do think parents have a, a large right to be very involved in the education process and and have certain veto powers at at certain. Mm-hmm points, but that the best way to navigate that is simply just to give the parents more options to find the right educational, the environment that aligns with their values. The trying to dictate it for everyone is just going to lead to a constant, it's just a constant battle then. And I don't want it to be a battle. Not all parents agree. It'll be a constant battle, and it seems like a very unproductive way to go about this. Not a great use of the courts either. Not Not a great use of anybody's time. Well, our rising panel will join us next. Stick around for that. The FDA has officially authorized second booster shots of the Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna coronavirus vaccines for people 50 years or older. An FDA spokesman said in a press release, quote, current evidence suggests some waning of protection over time against serious outcomes from COVID-19 in older and immunocompromised individuals. Based on an analysis of emerging data, a second booster dose could help increase protection levels for these higher risk individuals. The development comes as new CDC data confirms that those who received the Johnson & Johnson single-shot COVID vaccine are not as protected against hospitalizations or severe illness as are Pfizer and Moderna recipients. And now officials are recommending those individuals supplement their original regime with one or I guess eventually two mRNA booster shots. So I was I was actually listening to NPR this morning mm-hmm. and speaking of state media, speaking of state, <laughs> state media, and it was interesting how was the segment. Of, I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah. You. Was the segment about racism or was it about racism? <laughs> they, they didn't get into racism on the amazing, one. incredible. You found no. one. Okay. It was sorry. no, it was it was on this. Should you get the second okay. booster? And I think both of you would have come away from the segment being like that was extraordinarily reasonable. I think your heads might be exploding that it took them so long to get there. <laughs> but they were like, well, look, we talked to a bunch of experts. If, you know, if you are, uh, you know, if you have a comorbidity, you're over, over 50, then you, you should probably get this. It will reduce your risk of hospitalization, but you can walk, don't run. They were like, it's not a huge deal. Mm-hmm. Like, it's true that the other booster is waning, but, and then, then they also said, uh, people have asked, what if they recently had Omicron? Like, you know, that does does give your immune system a jolt. And so if you had Omicron or you've been previously infected, you probably don't have to be in any hurry to get the, get the jab. It was a window into wow. a world that we could have been living in this entire time. Um, <laughs> well, you know, actually, and to, to kind of go on that, CNN medical analyst Dr. Lena Wen actually kind of said something similar. She penned a Washington Post op-ed yesterday championing, championing the move away from top-down public health guidance. She wrote, the point is that while it's far from straightforward whether people need a fourth dose, there aren't those who want it. And there, there are those who want it and should be able to access it. The federal government's stance to allow this option signals an important pivot away from top-down public health guidance to individual decision-making. Going forward, people should be empowered to use boosters just as they do masks, tests, and treatment to manage their own risk of COVID-19. <laughs> so here we are, right? I mean, this is where we're at now. Uh, finally, as you mentioned, Ryan, we're kind of getting to that point where, okay, here's your risk. Here's what we've got for you. Manage it. Decide. What do you want yeah. to do? Yeah, allow a wide range of things, but don't require things. Leave it right. to individuals 
who know their own health to make the best choices for them in consultation with their doctors and, 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 and certainly expert guidance, but, you know, leave it, leave it to people to, to choose. The, the increasing recognition or the increasing willingness of the kind of establishment to, to recognize the benefit from having been infected that, that is giving you some level of protection is just is, it's extraordinary now. I mean, like a year ago, we couldn't even talk about that. And now and now they are now not only can we talk about it, they're talking about it, too. Yeah. Which just shows you how this how this has changed. I just I wonder, you know, in hindsight, and I, and I think it's important to talk about things in hindsight so that maybe in the future we make different decisions. But I do wonder if had we not just been so, OK, everybody has to get it. If it, if it would have if we would have had this more reasonable approach, if more people who genuinely were vulnerable and really did have severe outcomes and even deadly outcomes, if they would have been maybe more likely to have taken it if it wasn't so politicized and it was just, okay, every, you know, everybody must take it. And if you don't, then you're a crazy racist, anti-science, you know, Trump tard. I mean, that's kind of where it devolved into. And that was so dangerous, I think, for uh, on both sides. It was dangerous for people to believe that there was something like, oh, no, if I take it, then I'm now one of them. You know, right. I'm not, now I'm going to be a libtard. But it's also really dangerous for people to politicize it and say, well, if you don't, then you must be this Trump-tard, right? Right, right. Uh, I and hope going yeah. forward we learn from that. I think, I think they lost the thread right away. And, and, and I remember getting jumped on back in, like, March of 2020. So I, I was one of the people that was, you know, very early on saying this is going to be a lot more serious than you think. But also very early on I was saying, look, look, this thing where you're closing down parks— and yeah. <laughs> you know, taking these other extreme, absurd measures is not just wrong. It's going to undermine your public health credibility when you totally. need it in the future. And so they really blew it early um, by, by not treating people with more individualism and respect. And so that when they then had actual science behind them, uh, they had lost a significant right. chunk of the population by that point. Well, especially- that's, that's my take on it especially since they didn't modify after learning the science. Like here in L.A., the beaches were closed for so long, even after they knew that, you know, you had people, the the experts coming out, uh, who was it? It was Fauci and and Deborah Burks, right? And they were doing their daily meetings. And they were even coming out saying, if you're outside, you're pretty safe. You're not going to, it's very, very unlikely for you to catch it. And yet still in Los Angeles, they locked down yeah. the beaches, said they roped off the parking lot. You weren't allowed to go. I mean, it was just, even when the science evolved, they didn't shift. And that, I think, was the right. biggest. I mean, it's understandable we don't know things in the beginning. It's understandable that we're learning, right? But as we learn, we should be then modifying. And that just didn't yeah. happen. And I think that right. was undermined. And, and when a relaxation of those restrictions did not um, did not come when we started having the vaccines, even when they started re- requiring the vaccines, I thought... I mean, I didn't want them to require vaccines, but I thought it was they're going to require them in, in some of these circumstances. It's going to be so we can actually drop the rest of the stuff. And then it was very clear quickly after that that, no, all the other stuff is still going to be in place, which just, I mean, maybe feel foolish for even for even giving them the slight sort of benefit of that. Well, if they're I guess if they're going to do this, they won't do the other stuff. No, it was going to be everything. It was never going to be a relaxation of these emergency pandemic powers, which now which makes it more more important to, uh, from you know from my view to just oppose the whole thing because it was never going to be a reasonable kind of kind of calculation or a like you know right. there of- was, and there was that one critical moment i thought where it was a, it was an example but it was also widely viewed when you had was it january of 2021 you had all these democrats 
socially distanced and wearing masks in the in the Capitol mm-hmm. after they'd all been vaccinated. Mm-hmm. And I thought it, w- it would have been such a great moment for them to be able to just pack in, be like, look, we got the vaccine. Yeah. You get the vaccine. You can do this. Uh, instead, it's it sent an opposite message that what's the point of getting the vaccine? Mm-hmm. We're, because then we're still going to be masked. We're still, still going to socially distance when they had good science behind them. So, uh, yeah, I think there were, there were so many different mistakes made along the way. Um, wh- well, another yeah, question ahead. I've got about this darn vaccine that they've, you know, the booster, have they modified it yet for the strains that are circulating? Or are no. we still jabbing people with the original strain yep. vaccine? Is that where we're they at? They have not this? modified it yeah, yet. What, what happened to the whole, <laughs> like, one of the great things about mRNA is that you can tweak right. it and get it out so fast. And around November, they said they were going to start doing it. I know, that. that's why I've not been boosted. I, I mean, I'm, I, I don't regret getting the vaccine. I, I got the vaccine. And then I had a, a, afterward, I had a, 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 a Delta case that I suspect was more mild because of that I had been vaccinated. And I look, I, I'm theoretically willing to to get boosted. Uh, but I do have the, the, the protection of the vaccine and the prior infection. And if it's the case that and I don't know how much that protection helps for whatever strains we're experiencing now or likely to, to experience, but I don't see how, but if my previous vaccination and infection doesn't do much, why would the boost of the same vaccine right. help that much? I'm not totally sold well, on also, that. Well, also, as you're under 50, probably no comorbidities. Right. Don't, don't right. need to get too personal. Right. Uh, but right. the, the other interesting thing NPR said is that people over 50, one third of them have comorbidities. Like one third yeah. of Americans over 50 have comorbidities. Right. Yeah. What I've that, read in, this, in the data is that under 50, the, 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 they say that the vaccine, it's kind of, you know, it, it is if you have real severe comorbidities and you should maybe consider. And I do know somebody who was 38 and did pass from COVID, very, you know, did have comorbidities. Um, but then they said at 50, it seems to be kind of like the, because obviously age is a comorbidity with COVID. Mm-hmm. And 50 is that kind of, that point where it may right. or may not, your age may or may not, with or without comorbidities at 50. So it's kind of like the, the neutral zone. And then the older you get, it's you're more, your yeah. age is more likely to have an impact. So I thought I don't that mean was to be, interesting. I don't mean to brag, but I've been going to the gym before we do the show. I get up at 5.30 <laughs> to work out before we do this show. So, so I'm not, not worried about yeah. any comorbidities. Excellent. Well, but yeah, but to your point, Robbie, I do think that, you know, people will be open to taking this every year, especially if it's like a flu vaccine. But again, right. those are modified. Yeah, they got to actually update it. Right. They got to actually update right. it. <laughs> right. And then maybe people would say, yeah, OK, I want to get that. I don't want to get the sure. latest strain. Okay. Yeah. OK. But I, well, I don't know what they're doing. I don't know. What doing. And maybe there will be new vaccines, too, that use right. the old yeah. school technology that people are more comfortable with, or some people are more comfortable or, with, not out in LA. Or even, <laughs> or even there's the, the new ones that they're coming out with that are supposed to be even more protective, the nasal spray mm-hmm. ones that are supposed to really mm-hmm. um, help give neutralize. Me, give me some nasal spray. Yeah, with, uh, with spring starting up and allergy season coming back, uh, I am back on my allergy okay. nasal spray. <laughs> so yes, you're that, just like, that, add one yeah. more? Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> then, you'll, then you'll get all the people who were uh, really just afraid of needles. And that was and the, the entire kind of identity around being against it was just they don't like the needle. Don't like the needles. I don't know. I didn't hear very many. I, the, I mean, I know well, people that are pretty it. seriously. Yeah. I, but I know a lot of people really afraid of needles, but they still. You know, they, they still, still went for it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
but I think they, people had other reservations. I think more than the new technology of it. Yeah, for um, sure. And, and you know, yeah. and there's still a question around that. Why here in the United States do we still only have two types of vaccines, mRNA or the adenovector virus vaccine? Other countries have 10 different types at this point. We're still not getting them. You go down the border to Mexico and you can get several different types, including the traditional all the way to the mRNA. Still can't get that here in the United States. They still won't release Novavax. And that's a big question. A lot of people are wondering yeah. what the heck is actually going on. Yeah, yeah we're in no hurry to get those. Yeah, it's, it's you know, Crazy. They, should be, they should be pushing all of that as fast as they can through. Right, everything. Obviously through the safety pr protocols, right. but. What happened with AstraZeneca? I mean, that was very similar to Johnson & Johnson, right? Yeah. It's, it's still a, sitting it's in those warehouses. <laughs> we shipped I think it out we donated it. We donated it. Just gave it away. We're like, yeah, we're yeah. not going to use it. We'll just give it away. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in Europe, I mean, if Europe can use 10 different types of vaccines, why can't we here? I mean, yeah. are they less safe? Then we are same with Canada, same, same with Mexico. I mean, maybe Mexico. Maybe people can say, "Well, no, I don't know." I'm I mean, that's a general. This is a general principle that I've advocated even from before the pandemic. If something is approved by the UK, it should be de facto approved here. I, I don't. I have faith in British medical scientists, right? Like they're, they're not. If it's approved, that fine. You can put a warning label on it, say only approved by right. the, the you know the island the nation of the United yeah. Kingdom. Like, okay, I think it's safe. Yeah. Anyway, or Germany even. Yeah, for sure. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Coming up, Brianna Joy Gray will give us a preview of what's in store for midterms. Stick around. Progressive Congresswoman from New York, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, warned of impending doom for Democrats in November if they don't pursue an aggressive agenda for working class Americans. Ocasio-Cortez issued this stark warning to the intelligencer's Errol Lewis that she thinks President Biden got played by Joe Manchin and that the president's nostalgia for a bygone era of backroom dealmaking could prove disastrous for Democrats in the midterms. She also noted, quote, if the president does pursue and start to govern decisively using executive action and other tools at his disposal, I think we're in the game, she said. But if we decide to just kind of sit back for the rest of the year and not change people's lives, yeah, I do think we're in trouble. So I don't think that it's set in stone. I think that we can determine our destiny here. Here to discuss is Brianna Joy Gray, co-host of the Bad Faith Politics podcast and former Bernie Sanders press secretary. Brianna, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So uh, any any quibbles with a AOC's analysis here of the Democrats prospects in the midterms? Well, it will surprise nobody who listens to my podcast to learn that I don't quite think that Joe Biden got played as much as Joe Biden, uh, Joe Manchin and a whole cohort of corporate Democrats got exactly what they wanted. You know, the writing was on the wall as soon as they decoupled uh, the infrastructure, the human infrastructure bill from the more traditional infrastructure bill. The writing was on the wall the second uh, Chuck Schumer chose, you know, was not forced to, but chose to decouple a $15 minimum wage from the must-pass COVID relief bill. The writing was on the wall when the progressives in the House didn't use their leverage back in January to force a vote on any number of progressive issues uh, and, and hold up Nancy Pelosi's speakership as a consequence for doing so, and on and on and on down the line. There was reporting over a year ago, or about a year ago at this point, that showed that there were about 10 Democrats in Congress who did not want the full Build Back Better agenda to go through. And you only have to follow the money to understand why. So I'm not sure if if AOC is simply trying to nudge Biden in the right direction and hope that he she can use the 
uh, threat of failing in midterms to get him to do something with his executive authority in the final stretch. But the reality is that this continued um, view of Joe Biden as a good faith actor isn't going to have long term good consequences for progressive interests and the interests of working class people across the board in this country. But everything done by executive order can be undone by executive orders by president from the other party in the future. Uh, you know, do you see any problem with resorting to that uh, method of governance? I don't. Donald Trump certainly didn't. Uh, and the reality is there are a number of things that are so popular that you would face a quite a bit of backlash by undoing them. Let's take student debt cancellation. What exactly would undoing that look like? It's government, it's federally held debt that it would strike from its balance sheet with the stroke of a pen. It's really difficult for me to imagine a Republican president when, you know, just about half of the people holding student debt, the, the average of $30,000 a person of student debt that's held by 44 million Americans, 44 million Americans undoing that when the next, uh, you know, Republican president, whoever they may be, is going to be facing the same kinds of issues that we are right now. So the reality of the situation is you can show that you were at least willing to fight for somebody, to fight for your constituents, to do what you promised to do when you were coming into office by using your executive authority. And that's something that Republicans have understood for a long time. Democrats, on the other hand, seem to have something barely short of contempt for their base, where they see uh, their voters as sort of these little shame pigs who they, they they threaten and blame and coerce to come out and vote for them in a cyclical way as though the prize is membership to the Democratic Party instead of substantive material benefit, especially in the context of an economic crisis and ongoing pandemic that was supposed to end last year. And it, it does seem also that the party establishment is spending more energy at this point figuring out ways that they can actually blame progressives for what's coming in the midterms, that that actually it's, it's AOC's fault, it's these other progressives who forced Biden to say that he was going to do these popular things. And if he hadn't you know, said that he was going to do the popular things, then nobody would, really, I guess, be upset that he didn't do the popular things. Uh, do you, what, what's your sense of how effective they're, they're going to be able to be in, in making that argument? And so, you know, coming into 2023 and 2024, is the Democratic line going to be, well, we shouldn't even have bothered to offer anything. I want to be really clear that Joe Biden ran on canceling $10,000 of student debt, not progressives. Progressives were running on canceling all of it because that's the intelligent thing to do. No, no, no. Joe Biden, the bar is on the ground. It's a painted stripe on the concrete. Joe Biden wanted to cancel $10,000 debt. Joe Biden said he was going to cancel all debt for HBCU graduates. Joe, Bi the, uh, Joe Biden said that he was going to cancel uh, debt for uh, people making $125,000, uh, under $125,000 a year. That was his agenda. Joe Biden ran on a $15 minimum wage, which, of course, he had to. We're in, again, the longest period in American history since the implementation of the minimum wage without having had a minimum wage raise. These are bedrock, ground floor, bipartisan um, policies that he was running on. And the idea that he's going to try once again, I'm sure that the Democratic Party always does, to flip this into some kind of progressive malfeasance, um, it really shows how uh, little, little Democrats are willing to offer. And that's fundamentally why he's in this predicament right now. Voters can sense a complete unwillingness to deliver from the second he got into office and immediately reneged on the promise of $2,000 checks. And you will find if you talk to real people in the world, they have not forgotten that initial fundamental um, promise that was undermined. 
immediately right off the bat. And yes, could he go ahead and do like, you can't take back checks. There's a world where he could actually fulfill some of these promises between then and now. There's a world where he could um, do something that's incredibly popular, like decriminalize marijuana in a, a popular on a bipartisan basis. But again, he would have to have some respect for his voter base and a greater commitment to actually winning than protecting whatever centrist ideology and corporate ideology that he's protecting. Maybe it's because of the pharmaceutical industry that's deeply invested in, in, in drugs not being legalized, et cetera. I'm not sure. There's a whole conflation of incentives. But it's, what is very clear is that the well-being of Americans, including his Democratic voter base, is not one of those priorities. Yeah. Well, the marijuana one is, I would quibble with you on, on some, I don't, I don't know that canceling student loan debt is, is bipartisan, but, but marijuana certainly would be. I, the, the polls show that people on all sides of the ideological spectrum are increasingly open to that. Uh, but I, yeah, why they don't do it is beyond me. Meanwhile, Yahoo News contributor David Ferris has argued that the Dems could still win in November if they tackle the public's economic pessimism, if Democrats can steer messaging away from culture war, whose parameters are defined entirely by the right, and if they get a win in Congress, seemingly via a smaller bill that Manchin might go for. I, I don't know. That, those sound like very insurmountable things to do. But yes, if they, if they did them, that would work. What, what is the strategy, though, for, uh, Brie, from diverting the conversation to be about economics, where I agree the Democrats have a much more favorable battlefield than the culture war, which is all anything wants to talk, anybody wants to talk about, and where the Republicans are just like utterly like spiking the football in victory? Well, I think that article points out that there are some culture war wins that Democrats could be scoring here, right? That there are, that the, the polls demonstrate that people are overwhelmingly in favor of a woman's right to choose. And there have been all of these bills across the country where Republicans have all but ended uh, abortion access. There are polls that show that at the end of the day, a lot of these kind of authoritarian um, book banning bills are not popular at all. But Democrats have a hard time landing those arguments for some reason. And I think it is a legitimate choice, and I think probably the best choice, for Democrats to try to pull the conversation back on the ground uh, where they are more favorable, which is advancing, ostensibly advancing some of these bedrock economic policies. The problem is they're not going to do that either. We are in the culture war fight, not just because Democrats are conceding to Republicans' culture war framing. That's part of it. But it's also because you have to be able to argue in the alternative. I don't mean to put my lawyer hat on right now, but you have to be able to make a case in the alternative because you're never quite sure what whomever is reading your brief is going to perceive as the stronger argument or what the case law is going to bear out. And Democrats cannot argue in the alternative because they have abandoned voluntarily the alternative arguments that are actually in their favor because we have two corporate parties and the Democratic Party is also unwilling to actually follow through on those kinds of economic commitments. And that's why you see Joe Biden dropping a $15 minimum wage. That's why you see Joe Biden and the Democrats unwilling to cancel student debt and instead adding in this recent budget, what, $2.7 uh, $2 billion additionally for student loan funders, servicers? So that they can do spend more money collecting on debt from a population where even before this economic crisis, four, uh, 40 percent uh, of Americans could respond to a four hundred dollar emergency. And now you're going to tell people to start paying three, four, five hundred, twenty three hundred dollars a month in student loan payments again in the middle of all of this with the housing crisis and my entire generation unable to keep a roof over their heads. It's 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 political suicide. 
And they're asking us to go along with it and pretending as though uh, somehow it's the fault of AOC and a bunch of people who, whose names we didn't know three years ago, as opposed to 30 years of neoliberal policymaking. Yeah, and I, th I think you're right that there's just a, a fundamental contempt because it, there's so it would be it's such an it's such an obvious win to say you know what yes weed we're descheduling marijuana we can take that off of the DEA schedule sure do one. it do that it's one done. Yeah. they could do that but it associates the Democratic brand with progressives and they just don't want that they're like that would yeah that's that, people would be scared of that yeah yeah <laughs> the they, they hate are we really, are we really, I, I don't know that I want to sit here and corroborate the idea that legalizing marijuana, marijuana, which every, people who know me know that I'm the biggest teetotaler on the planet. This isn't even like a personal thing for me, but everybody else is, for decades has treat, has understood marijuana as frankly, the safest substance yeah. to use in the world, safer than alcohol. The founding fathers grew marijuana as a staple crop. Like, <laughs> right. This is ridiculous. I'm, I'm actually, this is ridiculous I, at this point. I, I'm worried that uh, the social conservatives are having a, such a like uptick in kind of support and ability to do things that we got we to gotta make marijuana legal now before, before, they, before, before the polling in. switches. Like, now is the time. Yeah. I'm worried we're, we're going to yeah. be, be on the other side of bad numbers soon at the at the rate everything else is going so brianna thank you for joining us thank you robbie we'll have more rising after this so that was joe rogan saying he would quit his podcast if it got to the point where he felt like he couldn't discuss the things he wanted to discuss which is you know kind of a follows from what he said uh, previously and, and how he feels about you know some of the the calls to have him taken down off Spotify calls that, you know, so, so far Spotify has totally defended him for the most part, have, has pushed back on. And it's gotten a little, a little quieter, I guess, of the last few weeks. We're no yes. longer doing a Rogan segment every day. We don't, we don't do a day. daily segment anymore. I know. It, yeah, yeah. And, he's, and he's talked in a bunch in the past about how the podcast evolved. You know, it just started with him talking to friends, basically. And then eventually it just started getting a little bit bigger. And when it got bigger, then people would reach out and say, hey, this so-and-so interesting person wants to come on. Do you want to talk to them? He's like, sure. That sounds interesting. So we'd do a three-hour conversation with them. That would get bigger and that would get bigger. And so it wasn't as if it was kind of reverse engineered from an idea of this program. And then they built it from right. scratch. So therefore, it's like if he, Joe, nobody really wants Joe Rogan walking on eggshells. No, like of that's course not, not. Like it's certain, you're not going to get the NPR, MSNBC crowd to start listening just because now he's, you know, caveating and being more careful about what he says, and his actual audience would leave, so he wouldn't have to necessarily right. quit. <laughs> the, the audience would, the audience would quit him. Nobody wants anybody walking on eggshells. They want to hear what you actually think. I mean, that's what yeah. they, that's what our audience hears from yeah. us. Um, some some minor, <laughs> some things we would discuss that YouTube can't let us. But other yes. than that, otherwise. You get, uh, you get our totally unvarnished yeah. opinion. Yeah, and I think, and I'm curious about this from your perspective, too. This, this is a little bit harder for me because I came up in print journalism, and, I'm, and still print journalism is where I considered my home to be. Like, yeah. And when you're doing that type of work, you write, you write out your draft, you get it edited. You, you often, if it's sensitive, you get it fact-checked, and you don't publish it until you know that every fact is exactly right. And I hate getting facts wrong. Like I got, like yesterday, I was saying that uh, we, when we were talking about the, uh, what's, what story was it? Oh, the, the judge who was saying that 
uh, Trump may or may not have committed a crime. I said that was a D.C. judge. It was actually, that's a California judge. Mm-hmm. A, a separate D.C. judge had, had made a similar argument, but the article we were talking about was a, this is a California judge who had made it around a due process argument say, and saying that, or saying that his pressuring Mike Pence could have been a crime. But I, 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 I like conflated a bunch right. of different stories, and it kills me when I do that because, right. you know, accuracy is everything when you're in yeah, and it's di- it's different. I mean, like you, I've right. made now this transition from mostly just yeah. uh, writing, and what you write gets edited, it gets revised, it's in consultation <laughs> with someone, to now to just speaking just for like hours a day, <laughs> right. just telling you what I think, which is a, a, a much less, it's not edited at all, or that I guess there's some editing. Uh, some help, you know, producers help us put together segments, give us ideas right. for things we should talk about. You know, they know what we think generally, so they're like, oh, yeah, this is good for you. But it's, uh, it, it is different because it's more just off the cuff and the danger of saying something wrong. I mean, if right. you talk for, and I'm sure that's danger Rogan faces, talking for three hours. If you let me talk for three hours straight, I'm sure I'm eventually yeah. going to say something wrong or, or just, or, you know, or slip up or, or something. I mean, that's why I keep my laptop open while we right. do this. And if, you know, if, if you say something that I think I don't agree with or that, you know, that what I'm not sure, I look check, it up yeah. or, or Kim or something, or I, then we can fact check myself later. So it's yeah. a it's an interesting process. It's it is very different uh, different from writing. It's sort of like if if your Google Doc that you were writing in was live and public, yeah, and people are just following it along. Yeah, now the difference with Rogan, though, is it's not live. Like so, or it's not live. There, yeah. so they you know he could there there would be, he wouldn't have to walk on any eggshells. And if something was just flagrantly wrong, you which hap- which happens that. in podcasts all the time, right. if something's flagrantly wrong, you can go in and be like, you know what. That's actually wrong. Right. So just we know it's wrong. It's not in dispute that it's wrong. Right. Just snip that out, so we don't share it. But he doesn't do that. That 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 could be a compromise that he could reach. Like oh, I said two plus two is seven. You're right. If Turns you make out it's those not. kinds of mistakes, right. I, I did a podcast uh, not not for Rising, but for something else the other week, and I said. I, I said EU when I meant to say UK, and then mm-hmm. just when we were done, they're like, oh, by the way, you know, you said, and so we just, like, we filmed the, the we did the line over again, right. because it was just a, I meant to say one. Right, which is, a, now, if it's a difference of opinion, right. then do that. don't take that out, but if yeah. it's a, just a factual difference. Yeah, but what, anyway. what, they're, what they're going after Rogan for, though, is not that kind of thing, right? It, it's, it's, what he gets criticism for is, yeah, is, is actually opinions, not easy things you could do over, but, but but a philosophy of skepticism, mostly of, I think, of COVID stuff, uh, of, of just departing substantially from what the health policymakers have said right. uh, in, in, a, in a way that, that I, we have also departed to some extent with. I mean, we have different opinions and Kim has different opinions, but I, I share some, at least some of I share mm-hmm. many of his criticisms of, uh, of the mandates and the, the non-vaccine mitigation efforts. Um, I, I, I don't necessarily agree with him on all his ideas about what therapeutics work, but uh, I, do, I do agree with him on the mandates, and that it, that is a uh, an opinion that a, a lot of people in the in the establishment, in the in the government establishment, their allies in the media, the public health establishment, just doesn't want those views having as yeah. big an audience as they had, and they, ha- they have a massive audience in 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 the person of Joe Rogan. Right. Right, and it's been interesting to watch the media try to fact-check some things that can't really be fact-checked. Even things that I like wildly disagree with, like, say, he had, was it Malone on, who was talking about 
mass psychosis formation. Right. Like, to me, an utterly absurd concept that is not rooted in any social science that, that, could, that more accurately could possibly explain him and his followers <laughs> than, the, than the rest of the world. But it's just a, an opinion, really. It's his take. Mm-hmm. It's, his, it's his scanning of the world and, and drawing from, I guess, some Norwegian author and saying that this, this is the way that I define what's right. happening in our world now. I think he's wrong. I think it makes no sense. But it's not really something where you can point to a fact and say, factually. Well, that, that's the wrong. entire problem with social science. Yeah, I agree with you right. that that whole thing was half-baked, but like all social science is half-baked. Right. It's Mar- all, is it's, Marxism half-baked? Like, Marxism, yeah, yes. Is, is Marxism some of it is not, very half-baked. Some of, uh, but at the same time, like, it has extraordinary analytical power to it in explaining you know, contradictions and different phenomena that we observe in the real world. Mm-hmm. But some people would say, like, it, these elements of it are completely half-baked. So you can't really fact-check it. Right. And you can't, you can't falsify it. You can't... Uh, and, and when you try, you know, so many social science kind of studies, the replication right. crisis really changed my thinking about this. Right. But you, you have these, these studies that, that say, oh, the people work like this, and we studied it, and we used very imperfect metrics. We actually used, like, mice in labs or something. And then they try to do it again, and they can't reproduce right. the results. So right. it's, no, it's now better than... Right. And then you're left with the Marxists saying, well, real communism's never been tried, and the right. capitalists saying, well, the real free market has never existed That's because true. we've always had yeah. these governments interfering. Yeah. And if you could just do that, then my theory would be right. What really threw me with Marx, uh, with Marxism, was kind of was learning that really the theory is that the world, according to Karl Marx himself, is, is the world is going to sort of spontaneously organize itself into this communist utopia sometime in the near future. In, in like a like a yeah the and it, comet is about you know we're about to be raptured it, it, it was verging on that kind of stuff and it doesn't happen and in, and in his his defense that was the least hashed out part of his own theory right. and that's what a lot of kind of post Marxists have focused their their work on is figuring that out and the thing that he didn't see that Keynes saw was the way that capitalism's contradictions created then mechanisms inside them uh, that would keep things going rather than create a a class war, such as, you know, a minimum wage, mm-hmm. social security, public spending, you know, to benefit the public, and that absorbs then a lot of these contradictions that he talked about. And for whatever reason, he just didn't see those, and just saw like the coming clash. Right. Uh, and also, like, you know, Engels saw World War One coming, and that was like the dividing line where he was saying like the the working classes will never go to war with each other. Oh no! Turns out, <laughs> oh yeah, they absolutely will. They absolutely, everything will. was reshaped differently after that. Yeah, uh, we should note that Spotify is rolling out a COVID content advisory tab on podcasts and other content that mentions the coronavirus. Spotify promised the feature a small blue tab that directs to its COVID nineteen information hub. Nearly two months ago, it comes after a handful of musicians and creators boycotted the platform for its airing of the Joe Rogan experience, which they say spread COVID-19 vaccine misinformation. So I don't know what if this system, if it's just a little label system that COVID is being discussed at all. And, and Rogan said at the time stupid. he was supportive of that. Yeah, it's fine, it's but, like, but also stupid. Maybe if you got millions of people and some of them want to click on that. OK. Yeah. Go ahead. I guess. It's, yeah. But but. But how does that, it's just not, you're not, you're not changing anybody's mind. Like, no one's going, oh, uh-oh, I'm about to uncover, I, Spotify thinks there might be something suspect about that. Like, what is that doing? 
Yeah, I don't know what it's doing. And and I I I wonder, uh, like I prefer, and I wonder exactly how. Like I prefer the fact checks that are done by. I've said this on the show before that I like Twitter's system the best, the uh, the Birdwatch system, which it hasn't like formally rolled out to everything, Mm -hmm. but that just allows anyone can post a a sort of a content advisory mm-hmm. note on any tweet and it's under it and it says oh there's a note on this and anyone can do it and and you can add like a, a li- here's why I think this is wrong and here's a link and then somebody can do that to that comment and right. and then and you can vote like was this useful was this helpful was this comment and it, it's a crowdsourced um, sort of fact checking that closer to like what Wikipedia does right. which, and I know I've been knocked for saying <laughs> that Wikipedia is generally a lot They're reliable it is more reliable than this system is better this system of user generated fact checking it's right. not perfect by any stretch of the imagination it is better than having no fact checking whatsoever and also better than having like a handful of ideological activists doing the fact-checking, which is what Facebook has. Facebook has invested a handful of totally far-left, you know, the most far-left ideologues ever. And and also it has some variety. It also has the Daily Caller. And and it is it, they have sole power to they, and they can just say nope this thing is this thing is wrong and and their yeah. their fact checking has been wildly irresponsible. I remember they they took down a think progress may it rest in peace a post that was an analysis of a Supreme Court decision because like daily, I think it was the Daily Caller at that point but somebody or one of the conservative publications didn't agree with the analysis. Mm-hmm. Like this is just an analysis. Mm-hmm. It might be right, might be wrong. It's like. Which, which opinion? It's an opinion, right? And it, it, they follow no norm, no normal norms of journalism in this fact checking. The, the fact checking organizations are like they're many of them are not operating under kind of journalistic considerations. Like I was falsely quoted by them. They they said you said this quote and this quote is false, <laughs> but I didn't say that quote. That quote doesn't appear in the article. I, I I've not made that claim, which is libelous. <laughs> Don't, yeah. You can't accuse me of saying something I didn't say. Did you sue them. No, I didn't say well. I just, I just, uh, I just went to the manager and got. I, Facebook I like the crowdsourcing out, response too, because then you yeah. can decide. Then you can say, oh, okay, this person says X, but tens of thousands of people are saying that I should actually consider the opinion Y. Right. That is saying that this is wrong. Then you can look at it yourself. I think Spotify should do something like that. Allow, sure. like, allow people to clip out, like Malone or whoever. Let's say he's interviewing Malone. Say, here's what Malone said. Here's the fact. And, and it can live like in a tree near, near Rogan, so that then people who are watching Rogan have a choice then to go and watch. And also, probably corp, you know, the corporation probably benefits through keeping people in your little sure. ecosystem. Well, I think that's, and I think that's better than a rule that says, nope, Rogan's not allowed to have somebody like Malone. It's dangerous. You can't hear it. We don't no. trust you to listen to this. Right. And if you incentivize people to, to actually like, go through and, and fact check, you probably get some interesting content out of that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Free idea for you, Spotify. There you go. (laughs) Take it and run with it. We'll be back with more Rising right after this. A new investigation from Politico's Alex Thompson lifts the lid on the unusual access and influence granted to billionaire and former Google CEO Eric Schmidt in the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, even as the office's general counsel raised red flags. Schmidt's close relationship with President Biden's former senior science advisor, Eric Lander, apparently paved the way for his reaching secret influence in the office. 
According to Politico, Schmidt's charity foundation, uh, Schmidt Futures, actually indirectly paid the salaries of two science office staffers for six weeks, including that of the office's top senior official, who rose to leadership after Schmidt's ally, Lander, resigned in disgrace earlier this year amidst allegations he abused his employees. In his post-Google ventures, Schmidt has advocated strongly for a greater federal role in funding 5G technology and artificial intelligence. All right, Alex Thompson is White House reporter at Politico. He joins us now to discuss his latest. Welcome to Rising, Alex. Thanks for having me. Right. And so this follows your, your earlier reporter on uh, earlier reporting on Lander. And can you talk a little bit more about the way that you know, Schmidt's nonprofit funded, um, you know, funded these fellowships? This is something that has gone on for a while, and Intercept's also done some interesting re- reporting on this. And I think people outside of Washington would be like, wait, Hold on. Step. Tell, tell me that again. That these billionaires are funding government positions, and that's legal. So, can you walk walk through that and and how it helped Schmidt gain influence in the White House? Absolutely. So it's meant to be confusing, and that's how they sort of are able to get away with this because it is complicated. Now, essentially, the federal government set up a way to bring on extra staff in case there was in case they were short staffed and using private funding now most of this comes through foundations from universities but what has happened in recent years is you've seen people like eric schmidt then fund the universities and the fellowships and then you know and then those fellowships end up placing people in agencies where there are conflicts of interest with the billionaires but because it's through sort of a conduit in this case it was the federation of american scientists that's headed by a close ally of Eric Schmidt. Because of that, they there's like one step removed. Now, even so, I have internal emails that made it very clear, even if it was through the Federation of American Scientists, they said in emails that they had secured funding through Schmidt Futures. And that, and that email is what first prompted the internal ethical red flags by the general counsel, along with several other people in the office's legal office. Yeah, and, and is there any is there something that could be that would be done about this because of those those flags being raised? Well, in, in this case, what happened is you basically had a clash where, um, in, because of those red flags, they eventually brought on one of the people through a more a more normal process. Now, in terms of actually reforming the whole system, what you'd have to do is really reform the locks is through this thing from 1971 called the Interpersonnel Act, which is way too complicated. But essentially, we're in a place where, I mean, this is, and this is just one office. This is happening across the entire executive branch. And at the moment, you know, there's not a lot of transparency into who is funding a lot of these fellowships. And how much of this is just a kind of shortage of funding for positions in the government? And how much of it is, is red tape? Because we're now almost in April. Uh, so more than a year into the administration. And if you look at the Senate calendar, they're still grappling with all of these different executive appointments more than a year into the administration. And these low level deputy assistant secretary, like positions that nobody cares about uh, other than the people in that office are you know, being pushed through the Senate confirmation process. And as a result, it basically takes forever to staff up an administration. And it's not partisan. It's, it's Democrat, Republican, either way. And I imagine maybe this gets people in the door faster, or is it more about just funding, that an office just doesn't have enough funding to hire the staff that they feel like they need? 
That's such a good question. The real answer is it's both. Now, the sheer number of Senate confirmable positions, the executive branch has basically let a lot of the executive branch to just be at a standstill. As a result, there have been these mechanisms that have been created, sort of like taping, taping things together in order to bring on extra staff, like you're saying. Also, in some cases, you know, the science, uh, the science office only has a $5 million annual budget. If you want to have extra staff, then you, uh, this is also a mechanism. So it's the combination of these two dynamics you're talking about, the dysfunction in Congress, the lack of funding. This was sort of seen and created, honestly, in an earnest way to help the federal government you know, work better. But what's happened is that people like Eric Schmidt have then used this avenue in order to you know, help bring on maybe some people that are allied with their vision for science policy, for example. Yeah, I, I have to imagine it's partly an issue of, of I mean, the, the more people, you know, that have to be confirmed by the Senate, like that number keeps increasing, but like the, the, there's the literal number of senators there are does not. It's like more work to do, like infinitely more work to do for the same amount of people. Yes, and the Senate also has become slower too, as like, you know, as partisanship has increased. I mean, you had Ted Cruz putting a hold on so many State Department officials for a long time over the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. And any senator can do that, you know, put a hold on a nominee. So you're absolutely right. You've essentially had the work, like Senate's moving slower, and yet they have more work to do. And so now you have an administration that still is not fully staffed up uh, over a year, over a year into it. Right. And right. To your point, it used to be that both parties believed that the party in power, you know, more or less had the had the right by winning the election to staff their government. And so if, if some deputy undersecretary was sent up to the Senate, it was just by unanimous consent. OK, fine. This, as long as this person's not like a criminal, then they then they go through. But right now they're using them as leverage points for all their different uh, parochial interests. But I, I wonder if there is there any way to salvage this project, because it, it does feel just from a basic kind of patriotic place that if, say, you know, experts at universities are willing to, you know, basically volunteer for the federal government, that does seem like something that would be useful to the public. Uh, but is, is there a way to write the law so that it, it doesn't instantly get used? Because you could, you could see it on the other side, too. You, let's say George Mason is getting a whole bunch of, like, Coke industry funding, and they're like, hey, guess we're, we're happy to mm-hmm. provide you with all sorts of experts. You know, oh, we'll what's wrong with that? This. Yeah, Robbie would love yeah. love every second of that. Yeah, it's, like a, it's like a libertarian the, dream. Yeah. So is there a way to do this that doesn't make Oof. Robbie happy? <laughs> um, you know, I, I'm sure that the I, I know for a fact that some members of Congress are already thinking about potential ways to do it. I mean, the, the most obvious way is that you just need to make the funding transparent, because when people, you know, if everyone knows that this is a Schmidt Futures backed fellowship, then people are going to be able to raise red flags. In this case, you know, it was almost sort of an accident that the general counsel found out that it was a Schmidt Futures backed person because the person was in their first week on the job and, you know, didn't seem to know that you don't put that in writing. And <laughs> as a result, that's what that's what like sort of prompted this whole story. Yeah. Well, don't worry, Ryan, I'm never actually happy. That's excellent. Alex, glad, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. And Kim Iverson will join us. Stick around next. What's on your radar, Kim? 
Well, it's bad news for Biden. A new poll released exclusively on the Hill shows if the presidential election were held today, Trump would beat Biden and would once again occupy the White House. The Harvard Caps Harris poll shows Trump getting 47% support compared to Biden's 41%, with 12% undecided. Mark Penn, the co-director of the Harvard Caps Harris poll survey said, this has more to do with Biden being disliked than Trump being loved. Could you imagine being so disliked that over you, voters prefer the guy who lied about his inauguration crowd size, tried to ban TikTok, grabbed them by the pussy, locked kids in cages, ripped children away from their parents at the border, called far-right protesters very fine people, imposed the Muslim travel ban, wouldn't show us his tax returns, denied Russian meddling in the election, called political opponents names like Pocahontas, tried to buy Greenland, called John McCain a loser, withdrew from the Paris Climate Agreement, called certain countries shitholes, blamed Ukraine and not Russia for election meddling, sprayed Black Lives Matters protesters with tear gas for a photo op, denied the election results, led the charge to put five teenagers to death, questioned Obama's birthplace, paid off a porn star and a Playboy model, called Mexican immigrants rapists and murderers, told Proud Boys to stand down and stand by, wrote love letters to Kim Jong-un, told Russia if they were listening to hack Hillary's emails, called COVID the China virus, held super spreader events during the height of the pandemic, deported 59,000 Haitians with protective status, used ICE as his personal Gestapo to break up families, mocked a disabled reporter, obstructed the Mueller investigation, pardoned his pals, pressured Zelensky to investigate the Bidens, incited an insurrection, was impeached twice, and according to the Post, lied 30,573 times. Could you imagine that guy being more popular than you? Now, just to be clear, I don't believe all of the things on this list. Some are true, some are exaggerated or taken out of context. And these were just a few of the many things we were fed over and over about Trump during the four years of his presidency. The news media hasn't under any stretch of the imagination given Joe Biden the same treatment they gave Trump. Though there is much to investigate and criticize Biden for, the news media largely ignores it. And yet the voters, according to this poll, would still choose Trump over Biden. Now, what does this tell us? It tells us most people don't care about the morals or character of the president in office as much as they care about the economy. Mean tweets, name calling, lacking the typical political polish doesn't mean as much to people as their bank accounts. All of the controversy surrounding Trump was good for keeping eyeballs glued to the news, which was certainly good for their bank accounts. But the scandals Beltway insiders were clutching their pearls over didn't actually affect people in their day to day lives. For the most part, reading about Trump's antics was no different than people reading gossip in tabloids. It was shocking, made people upset, but when they went home, their lives were largely unaffected. In fact, under Trump, not necessarily because of anything he did or didn't do in particular, but up until the pandemic, people were doing better economically than they had been for a while. Now with inflation out of control, people are paying significant increases for things like bread, meat, vegetables, used cars, and of course, gasoline. Rent is increasing. Student loan interest payments are about to start up again. People are going back to work. Kids are back in school. But with gasoline so high, the commute costs are stressing families out. The liberal media keeps telling us the economy is booming. It's growing at its fastest rate since 1987 with unemployment down and job growth up. But it just feels like the latest round of gaslighting. Americans are poorer today than they were yesterday, and they're letting the president know by giving him his lowest approval ratings yet, according to the latest NBC News poll, and they're even signaling they'd rather put up with foul-mouthed Trump than suffer another day worrying about their financial future, according to this latest Harvard-Caps-Harris poll. Now, what can Biden do about it? 
Well, stop relying on old tricks. They're no longer working. This war in Ukraine, for example, is not uniting Americans the way wars did in the past. People are not rallying around the flag, especially since the flag we're being asked to rally around, in this case, isn't even the stars and stripes. Since 2016, voters have been begging the administrations to focus on America and Americans' needs rather than dumping our money on foreign soil and endlessly increasing the defense budget. Americans want the government to govern in a way that benefits the middle class rather than their corporate donors. So focus on that. If Biden wants to win back Americans, he needs to ignore the outraged news media feeding Americans a steady diet of moral panic. He needs to ignore the questions coming in from the press corps whose sole job is to get clickbait headline material to keep their papers in business. The press is in a bubble and it swallows up politicians and distracts them from doing their jobs, which is helping Americans live better lives. Instead, they've sucked them into thinking what Americans care about most is Trump's latest mean tweet and which carcass Putin is eating for breakfast. Americans care about their kids, their bank accounts, retirement, whether or not their rent is going to go up, how they're going to care for their aging parents and when they're going to get out of the rat race of living paycheck to paycheck. If Biden wants his numbers to go up, he needs to focus 100% of his attention on Americans and the quality of the average American's life. So what do you guys think? Are we going to get Trump back in office? Is Biden going to learn the American people want solutions for our American lives? Or are we going to get Trump in 2024? Uh, if it's those two choices, <laughs> we're going to get Trump in 2024. Um, I, but, you know, Biden's problem is how much, you know, how much can he do? Uh, Ryan talks a lot about how he, you know, his troubles to actually get his agenda through Congress, right? Yeah. Some of that is is a problem he wishes he didn't face, but he does face. Um, I, I do think Trump would probably decrease in popularity if he was out there talking as much as he as he used to be, right? He's him being off Twitter is is like the best uh, best gift yeah. they can they can give to him. Which is which Isn't just, that ironic? You know, proves that, right. It proves the whole yeah. liberal censorship thing is exactly backfiring. But mm. uh, but you know, a question becomes. So I absolutely think Trump could defeat Biden. I, I think he. I think any other Republican is probably has a better shot. But the, you know, the question we have to ask is because it really doesn't matter, right? Who's going to win more votes? It matters who's going to flip. Uh, Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania. What candidate is going to prevail in those states? Is going to prevail over Biden where, where Trump faltered? And yeah. maybe that candidate is Trump. Maybe it's somebody else. I don't know. Well, according to this poll, just to also bring this up, they did look at like uh, DeSantis against uh, against Biden. And, and they did find that pretty much any Republican, they, they didn't do as well. Trump actually yeah. still did the best against Biden. But they did say that they think if name recognition, you know, Trump has a name recognition. So right. if if there were a Republican with more name recognition, then maybe they would beat Biden as well. Uh, so I thought that was pretty interesting. Also, that DeSantis did not do as well against him as Trump did. Yeah, he's not nearly as well as well known yet. Right. But uh, and yeah. I, I could be wrong. But my suspicion is that, you know, once that person becomes the candidate and has that name recognition, um, they, they'll have. Yeah. As, as oh, good yeah. a shot as Trump, if not better. Well, you know, that, that, that's how this works. Like, we're in the news business, so we hear about Ron DeSantis all the time. But people right. who are just casual followers have probably a lot of, I'd be curious to see the name ID numbers. I, I assume a lot, you know, certainly a majority of the country has, I think, heard of him by now. But how many people, like, have an opinion beyond, like, oh, yeah, he's, 
he's like a governor of Florida right. or like maybe right. he's right. a Republican guy. But once he becomes, you know, if he runs, uh, that that you know right. that that's a giant parade of name recognition. Plus, then if he becomes the nominee. Is he'll have 100 percent. What percentage of people do you think know that Ron DeSantis is the Republican governor of Florida? That yeah. I think you're down into the 20s at that point. You 20s think that or 30s, low? 40s. Oh, 30s. I don't think it's more than half. Maybe maybe it pushes to 40 with all of the partisan mm. people who like really follow. But I mean, look at the ca- yeah. cable news audience. It's like Tucker has like the biggest show in the country and he gets three or four million. Mm-hmm. You know, that's tiny. Yeah. Yeah, we forget. So, we forget. Yeah, so. Yeah. Uh, but Unless I also Joe think, Rogan has DeSantis on his show, yes, right? Then, then, then they'll know. <laughs> <laughs> 10 million. Uh, but I think that Trump now is a lot different than Trump two years from now with two years of Republicans in the majority in Washington. And we don't know hmm. what's going to happen also over the next two years. Do, does inflation continue? Does it get, yeah. does it get hotter? Uh, does it does it cool off and the economy grows and COVID goes away? Like, a lot can happen. Do we all get nuked and die? Like, you know, a lot can happen. <laughs> let's, let's hope between, not. But it is between now it and is then. amazing, you know, that they have forgotten about that laundry list of, you know, oh my gosh, all these terrible things that Trump did and said, and yet they would choose him yeah. over Biden. I mean, you've got Biden's got to have some serious heart to hearts with himself and his in his administration at well, this with, point if people with, are right. choosing trump today with negative polarization like the my pillow guy would be at mid 40s <laughs> so yeah he might not be ahead of biden but he'd be it'd be like it'd be like a coin toss yeah well and and you're right that the media made so much out of every single one of those things that you mentioned kim and and like you i think some of those i think a lot of those were legitimately very bad things trump did reasons not to vote yeah. for him. I, I, I do, uh, unlike a lot of people in conservative media, I do ascribe significant blame to him for what happened on January 6th. Uh, but some of those other things, right, they, the media made way too much of the, you know, Russia stealing the election stuff, um, even, so, you know, sometimes his, his quotes being taken out of context or how, how, how all hate crimes are somehow his fault because, you know, mm-hmm. of, of the things he says. So, so there, there's a, a boy who, who cried wolf problem often in the media coverage of Trump. So. Well, and that's why I think they're going to do everything they can to try to get Trump back into office. I mean, let's get 100%. real, you know, it was great for them, great for business. They need so, him. Yeah. So maybe they, they will him. keep him out of the spotlight so that people kind of romanticize him rather than remembering his foul mouth and then and then come election day. I mean, I don't know. But it's the, it's the Joker and Batman from The Dark Knight. Kill you. What would I do without you? Joker says. Well, so the good news about that is, I suppose, is that he could only run and win one more time. (laughs) And then they would have to move on to somebody else. They'd be forced. That's right. (laughs) Wild. All right. Thank you, Kim. We'll have more rising after this. Comedian Jim Carrey blasted Will Smith's behavior towards Chris Rock and was sickened by the standing ovation the actor received after winning Best Actor for his performance in King Richard, should have been escorted out of the ceremony. He told CBS Gail King, I was sickened by the standing ovation. Hollywood is just spineless in mass, and it really felt like this is a really clear indication that we aren't the cool club anymore. While Rock has declined to press any charges against Smith, he's seen his ticket sales skyrocket uh, since the incident. <laughs> So he's, uh, you know, got a lot of, lot of sympathy, a lot of support for Rock. I mean, that's how I feel. That's how 
you know, a lot of people feel. But I think at minimum, I don't know why Will Smith's Academy Award wasn't taken away at minimum. Uh, I mean, if they're not going to press charges, I guess fine. We all saw what happened. It's on tape. He assaulted Chris Rock in public on camera. We watched it happen. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess they might. The only... They could still, right? They're reviewing it. They might decide to. I don't know. They right. should have done it right away. Yeah. They might. I. I actually think that the artist should not be punished for the the art should not be punished for the behavior of the artist and, and even the artist necessarily shouldn't be punished in other words he won the oscar for That's fair. I his get perf- with that. for his performance in king richard and if they think that it was that great then he should get that dis- right. despite whether he's a creature offset i th- you know i, I you okay know, I, I could go know. with that i could but go I with that he should have been kicked out done. immediately the security right. should have come up and yeah. be like hey we're looking for yeah. somebody who came on stage and just... Tall guy. You might know what he looks like. So he's just serious. slapped our MC. Yes. You see, oh, it was you. Yeah. Please, yeah. Come, come with me, sir. Like They should have deprived him of the ability to speak that night and give his speech. I agree with you, Ryan, now that you, you pointed yeah. out. You're right. He probably still should have won the award. Fine. Yeah. You know, he did it. He, he did a good job. Uh, I thought it was a great movie myself. But they should have absolutely denied him the glory, the opportunity to stand up there, to give thanks, to get that standing ovation. He should have been out of there. Unless he was going to make some serious apology, which instead he didn't. He didn't apologize really to, to Chris Rock. He did not apologize he to Chris Rock. He has subsequently, but... And he did the yeah. domestic abuser thing of uh, love makes you do crazy things, which right. is just the absolute worst thing you could say in that moment. Like did that, he say yeah. that, like, and like, yeah. trying to be a better Christian type stuff that just felt... Exploited. Maybe. Maybe. It's religion just, in some way, I thought. You know, but, it's just so sad because Will Smith just has always had that, you know, it, you know, we, I think so many of us always looked up to Will Smith and thought he was one of the yeah. good guys and, you know, just a, a kind person, funny person. And then to see him do this and then yell at Chris Rock, it was just very, I, I think for so many of us, shocking because it's like, that's not the Will Smith we all thought we knew. Yeah. Well, to, to me, the the most revealing thing has been not the act itself, but the reaction to it. Like so many young people in particular are, are just certain that it was entirely appropriate for Will Smith to have done what he did. And there's a real right. kind of divide. There's a real divide there that I think is that I think is telling beyond just fun kind of takes about the, a, a genuine shift that's going on in our in our culture. Yeah. That seems like a dangerous, genuine shift. Are we going to show sound- that that Hill poll we were just looking at? Or the, yeah, what, can, what we do, put that can we put up? it up? And so, I don't know if this is the same thing, but, okay, Twitter data indicate that most of the country supports Chris Rock after the slap of map mm-hmm. released Tuesday by the sports gambling company betonline.ag. Uh, shows 41 states support Rock in the very public drama, while nine states are firmly in Smith's camp. They did this by geotagging tweets that showed support for Rock and Smith, respectively. Take, also take that with a grain of salt. You mess right. up your geotagging or you mess up your sentiment and you don't catch sarcasm or whatever. You can, you can right. blow those right. analyses. Right. But more, it's like, an interesting map, yeah. though. I mean, yeah, I, I thought that the liberal states would be the ones like, well, Will Smith was in the right because he made fun of his wife's alopecia. Uh, so, and I think that's to your point, Ryan, when you say younger people are kind of like, well, mm-hmm. it was, it was right. right. Because I think we're kind of in this era where, you know, I know with my, with younger people that I've been around, they think, especially during Trump years, that it was totally fine and justified to hit Nazis, right? Like punch right. Nazis in the face. So somebody who's bad, who's, who's making right. fun of somebody who is 
disadvantaged in some way or has something, you know, like alopecia, then that person deserves to be punched in the face, apparently. Maybe yeah. that is a Although you could make the case, sentiment. if you go back far enough, it would be the, it would kind of be a conservative being like, well, yeah, if you insult someone's in a sort of honor culture way or a chivalry way, right? It's, it's raw. It, yeah, of course, someone who belittles your, your wife, that's how you, you should respond. And it's, uh, yeah, looking, so looking at this map, the, 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 the pro Will Smith states are like, what is it, Georgia? Um, no, Georgia's this, not. Well, not oh, wait, Georgia. No. Oh, South, Alabama. Right, South, Alabama, South Carolina. Mississippi. Um, Oklahoma. Nebraska, Missouri, yeah. Iowa. Uh, Arkansas and yeah. is that Vermont? Which one's Vermont or is that New Hampshire? That's New Vermont's Hampshire. I can never left. tell which one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which one's which? <laughs> New Hampshire's on the right. So some of these, some of these that are southern states, you know, have significant um, African American populations. And from what I'm seeing on Twitter, I mean, I, like this is not scientific at all. I'm seeing a lot of you know, Twitter users of color on the pro Will Smith side mm. of this. Like for instance, Zoe Kravitz has been trending all morning because she criticized Will Smith. She's pro Chris Rock. She was criticizing Will Smith. And then she's been trending because people are attacking her wow. for criticizing Will Smith. Like, there's all this stuff that they're trying to service that, like, accusing her of being... Uh, it goes back to your everything's about pedophilia radar from the other day, Kim. Like, they're accusing her of that because, like she said, that, like, she liked Jaden Smith, who's Will Smith's son, was, like, good-looking when he was 14 or something. My gosh. So it's, it's, a, it's a nasty world out there anyway. But um, There's also a class. But, you know, yeah. it's interesting that this is divided racially, if that's the case, because both men are black. I mean, this isn't a black-white issue right. at all. I think it's well, because also- they're viewing the victim as as Jada Pinkett Smith, a black woman. Oh, right. I think oh, that's I how see. they're viewing okay. it. There's so also a- and, 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 and by they, I mean, there's clearly there's significant... People of all races on all sorts of difference. It is by of no course, means no. unanimity, but I'm seeing some of that sentiment shared by people of color on Twitter. Sorry to interrupt you. No, no. I feel like there's also you can see on Twitter and elsewhere like there's also a class layer to it. Mm-hmm. And I feel like uh, if I would back when I used to be working class, I I think if I'd have been watching this, I'd be like, yeah. I would have been like, yeah. Well, we, we know uh, you've been t- in a, a, a brawl or two over yeah, your, uh, your <laughs> life, Ryan. Uh, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm in a new world now. And, uh, yeah. Now you're a respectable television host. So. <laughs> but I also, I, also, I also genuinely have come to terms in my life that, that, that violence is not an answer. Like, that, you know, this was like such that's a, a genuine thing. evolution I've gone through. Well, and a, a, a clearly Will Smith went in the opposite direction as he got older. Uh, but what was or weird about this was... I mean, because he he himself condemned Will Smith, right? Like, yeah, but he he uh, laughed at it at first, right. and then he looked over at his wife, and she had like angry face. Yeah, and so then he went up there and violence is just I embarrassing. You look embarrassing right. later. It's not a it's not satisfying in a vengeance standpoint. You need like long term Monte Cristo style revenges, where like years later right. <laughs> you bankrupt their family. I I, I won't get into although my he also of killed revenge, them, but. but. I, well, I think, think he causes them to kill themselves or something. Yeah. It's, uh, no I'm still one... in the camp that thinks this whole thing was a, it was just a way to get ratings for the Oscars, and they've just devolved <laughs> into Jerry Springer antics to try to get viewers. I, I, it, to me, it's just so bizarre, bizarre behavior. Yeah. I, I, it just seemed so staged. I mean, people are like, no, that was real. Look at them. And I was like, Will Smith is, a, a, he just won the Oscar for the best actor. So 
clearly he knows what he, you know, he knows how to act. Right. So you can I completely stopped watching and... them. I, I don't watch them anymore. I don't, they, they reward movies that, that like no one likes or sees. <laughs> it's, it's, they don't, they don't reward the movies people actually like. Like the, they, they disdain, they look down on the superhero movies and all that. I actually yeah. like those movies. Those are the most they popular need a superhero movies. Category. What? They need a superhero category. No, they should just, they should just, all the superheroes should, uh, stuff should win all the uh, actual, uh, actual <laughs> awards. Yeah, there, I said it. Well, I, I thought that Will Smith did do a fantastic job in that movie. I cried in that movie. He made me cry. You know, I thought it was a really good, uh, but. But um, so, I, yeah, I think he's a really excellent actor. But I don't know. How many people do you think actually think this was staged like I do? Oh, no, no it, I don't think it was staged. It like, really, I, I would have it thought it was staged. But then the, when he yelled, he yelled the F word at, at Chris Rock afterward from the from, That's when it was, I thought, clearly not staged. Before that, I would have said, yes, it looks staged. Uh, because Chris Rock's reaction was actually so good that he like he didn't yeah. freak out. But then it, that was genuine anger, I think. That was not staged when uh, when Will Smith yelled at him afterward. And, and also, you, with all of these conspiracy theories, you have to go back to the who's benefiting. It's and not who's, a conspiracy and who's pe- theory. Who's, who's pe- well, the conspiracy would be that it was planned ahead of time. Well, and I mean, they me, do that all like, the time. What, what incentive does Will Smith have to drag himself through this situation just to boost the uh, he probably uh, thought, ratings of the of the academy, which no, but he probably thought because it, he's defending his wife's alopecia, and he probably thought because of the way the the climate is right now, you know, with as you mentioned, younger kids well, he, are I mean, like, he was yeah, right. he, he is getting a lot of support. Yeah, so yeah. you know, no, I, I don't think it, it did like fit the theme. Of his, so. Did fit the theme of the movie. Nobody's watching the Oscars. I think this was like their last ditch effort to stay on television. Next year, they're probably going all online because. Nobody watches, so this was it. They had to go Jerry I hope Springer. So. I hope that happens. <laughs> I don't want to watch them. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we will have more rising after this. I don't know if this is our lap, uh, last slap segment, but uh, I think it might be. It might, it might just be. Or this would be like a Joe Rogan thing where we just revisit the slap from various angles for Too uh, bad for I can't, like, smack, smack. It doesn't work. I can't oh, you can't hit you like your your hands yeah. don't appear. I'm over screen. here, right? Yeah, yeah, it doesn't work. You guys yeah. are safe. I'm glad. I'm glad Ryan's not a not a brawler anymore. Yeah. So I'm just this a, is a man of peace now. This is a safe working environment. <laughs> All right, more rising after this. Freshman Congressman Madison Cawthorn made headlines yesterday after the North Carolina newcomer blasted Washington lawmakers over orgies and drug use while on the Warrior Poets Society. The remarks came after the show's host, John Lovell, asked Cawthorn how similar D.C. really is to the popular show House of Cards. Let's watch. The sexual perversion that goes on in Washington, I mean, being kind of a young guy in Washington, the average age is probably 60 or 70, and I look at all these people, a lot of them that I, you know, I've looked up to through my life, I've always paid attention to politics, guys that, you know, it, then all of a sudden you get invited to, like, well, hey, we're going to have kind of a, a, a sexual get-together at one of our homes, you should come. And I'm like, what, what did you just ask me to come to? Yeah. Uh, and then you realize they're asking you to come to an orgy. Yeah. Uh, or, or the fact that, you know, there's some of the people that are leading on the movement to try and remove, you know, addiction in our country. And then you watch them do, you know, a key bump of cocaine right in front of you. And it's like, wow, this is, this is wild. 
Well, Republicans were reportedly furious over Cawthorn's remarks. Leader Kevin McCarthy said he plans to talk to Cawthorn over his orgy allegations. And while some members think it's all a lie, other GOP members are saying if it's true, Cawthorn should name names. Otherwise, it maligns the entire institution. And Kevin McCarthy isn't the only one seeking Cawthorn's testimony. Congressman Scott Perry, who chairs the House Freedom Caucus, which Cawthorn is a member of, said he plans to speak to Cawthorn one-on-one about the comments. In regards to how this may affect Cawthorn's membership in the caucus, Perry said, we will discuss that when we get to it. So, I, I mean, I, I look, guys, I, I'm not there in Washington like you guys are. So, Ryan, Robbie, tell us, is it true? Well, yes. <laughs> I, mean, I know exactly who he's talking about. But we were, well, ta- uh, we were talking about this earlier. So I don't we, know. Don't to, we don't need to be coy about it. Like, ro- Well, I'm not, I'm not going to say it in case we get... No, you, Roger Stone speaks openly. Right. That's who I was uh, thinking of. Roger Stone speaks openly. He's was profiled by Jeffrey Tubin in the New Yorker. He like he's a party guy. Yeah. Like I'm not talking about the cocaine use, but like the orgy stuff. Like he's he's wildly open about. Thought like, there was on the record swinging yeah. acknowledged. He's a he's swinging. That he's is fun. the so that's like, the figure I thought of. If if Cawthorn was referring to someone in so that, that's just a political activist. If Cawthorn was referring to a sitting member of Congress, I don't know what he's talking about. Yeah, and I if imagine re- it's true, but I don't, I don't know. If he's referring to Roger Stone as the lamest use of an anonymous person ever to like say something you know, kind of titillating. So that is a widely shared detail. But if he is having parties, then he would be inviting people, right? And those people would presumably well, be... Well, he's down in Tampa doing his Florida man thing. Yeah. I, look, I'm so, sure it's I going on. I, I, I have no... I don't no, trust Madison Cawthorn. And also, like, just to yeah. be clear, I am a libertarian. I have no problem with any of those things as long as they're consensual and everybody's on board. No problem. I don't have any problem with it. I suspect many voters do and don't want their, their Congress people doing those things. I just want my Congress people not to steal my money and raise my taxes and regulate me. So, so. We, we actually... Well, we can actually yeah, can I, fact check something that Cawthorn said recently. He said that uh, it's true that Nancy Pelosi is a giant drunk, and he, he knows because he's you know, <laughs> in, in the rooms. It's a lie. Like, Nancy Pelosi is a teetotaler. She doesn't drink. And what, what else is a lie is the idea that Madison Cawthorn would be in any room with Nancy Pelosi other than the floor of the House. Like, that's it. Like, he's not, he's not in rooms with Nancy Pelosi. And so... If she he's does seem lie. like she's a wine lush, though. Are you saying she doesn't right, but drink she's not. at all? It's, she's not. Really? Yeah. Right. Wow. Uh, and so, I mean, and that's widely known about her. And so, right, she, our, ice cream is her, is her vice and power. Yeah. Well, like yeah, that, we know about that. The, yeah. Ice cream and power are the things. <laughs> ice that cream she's and into. millions of dollars. So you know, yes. you know that Cawthorn falsely claimed that he had some knowledge of uh, Nancy Pelosi. For, which he doesn't, and then said something about her, which you would think would be true because you're like, yeah, she seems that way. Turns out it wasn't true. So you, we know that he has a penchant for lying about this sort of thing already. But can we talk about the key bump thing? That was pretty yeah, funny, that wasn't it? Yeah, can't go unnoticed. <laughs> like, what a, what, a, what a tell. Yeah. I mean, like if, Do you what follow you us? About? Kim's not following. No. Kim, Kim's like, don't know what you're talking about. If you use the phrase key bump, like, the chances are pretty good. Let's be careful uh, here. You Let's are, not have, make any accusations. That you're a key bumper yourself. Yeah. People can Google what, what, it, what, what is a key that? bump is. It's, that's it's how you stick a key into a bag of cocaine that's and how you it consume off the key. It. Yeah. yeah. That's how some people oh. consume it. It's like a, it's like a, people consider it a trashy way to consume it. Not that a rolled up dollar bill is any less disgusting. Yeah. You know, it's filled with as much grotesquery as anything else. But so it, pe- people commented on his familiarity with, with the terminology. 
in a, in a way that was kind of revealing in the same way that we were talking about this earlier. Larry Craig, who, uh, who was kind of, who was arrested in this Minneapolis airport bathroom, uh, there's this transcript that the cop who entrapped him released, and he says to the cop, uh, he said, I didn't cruise you, you, you cruised me. And all of straight America was like, what's cruising? What does that mean? <laughs> what, does, yeah. what, does that, what does that mean? So you've kind of like revealed yourself as a member of a, of, of a community, whether by the terminology that you're familiar yeah. with. Well, I yeah. guess that we now know I've never done any cocaine, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> now, I don't, I don't, I don't care about any of these things. People should do whatever vice. It does not matter to well, me. It is except, no concern of mine whatsoever. It should all be legal. And the greater scandal is the the evils our government visits on all of us, not what they're doing. And, and well, it, should be, it should be regulated so there's no fentanyl in it. Right. I agree that it should be legal, that people should be able to decide and do whatever they want. But it is illegal right now. And if our lawmakers are doing something illegal, they should have the same book thrown at them that gets thrown at the average person sure, in sure. middle yeah. and lower class America. Well, but we just shouldn't throw the book at those right. people. Put all the books away. Nobody should get books thrown at them. No, 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 no throw throwing books away either, Ryan. We're not going to throw books away. We're not gonna <laughs> <laughs> Books should be on the shelf now, in the library of a public school. <laughs> don't throw the books. Don't burn them. Don't, yeah. Depends the content, right? Yeah. Well, if, if you don't like it, you put it on the high shelf, you know, if yeah. you want the little ones. Six-year-olds you know, can't put it on reach the top. Right, just yeah. put it on the top shelf. Problem that's, solved. That's a, that's a genius solution to the whole thing. It really is. And no, la no ladders in there. But yeah, I mean, to his point, Washington is a party town. Everybody drinks all the time. Not it's not like House of like, Cards. It's like Veep. That's another way you know he's, uh, he's not a trustworthy nar narrator here. It is, D.C. is Veep, not it's House Veep. of Cards. Yeah. So if, and if you think it's House of Cards, then you're not actually familiar with how Washington works. And despite you know, his, his career as what a donor's kid who got an intern and then wound up in Congress, I don't think he actually knows as much about Washington as he thinks. Yeah. Mm. Well, I mean, he's young, right? Isn't he the youngest member of Congress? So he's just kind of getting in there. It's fun. And he's and let's get let's maybe... get him on here. I, we, I, yeah, let's have Madison. That would be great. <laughs> he, he, un, unfiltered, clearly yeah. willing to share things. I, we, totally. The reason we don't do. Uh, oh, he's been on. Oh, he's been on the show. I don't Nor, know. Nora, let's us. get him back on. Yeah. The reason we yeah. don't do a lot. Uh, we do some. We do interviews with some political uh, figures. Our people, you know, who are interesting, we think will be interesting to the audience. We don't do a lot of them because it's, it's so hard to get, especially when you're doing with a seasoned politician, it's right. so hard to get them to actually say interesting things, to get beyond whatever talking points they have in their commercials. And, you know, we don't want to waste your time. I'm speaking directly to our audience now. But, uh, but that, that doesn't mean we, should, we can't do them or, or, or shouldn't do them. Uh, it's just about finding the right people, interesting people who are going to speak candidly on issues that might be of interest. And Representative well, listen, Cawthorn, Cawthorn is, is one of them. Yes, so. Yeah, yes. if he's going to drop names on this show, let's bring them on. Name names, Madison, let's do it. <laughs> All right, we're going to get our bookers right on that. Yeah. Tomorrow on Rising, we have another stellar show coming your way. The Hill's Hannah Trudeau discusses some of her latest reporting on why progressive candidates are distancing themselves from the progressive label. And Jonathan Tomari is with us to break down some new polling out of the Pennsylvania primary. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. So be sure to check that out. All right, guys. Thanks for watching. Bye-bye. See you tomorrow. Bye.